Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3. I'm considering faith defined. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3, faith defined. Give attention to God's holy word. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is you alone who gives your people strength, and it is you alone who blesses your people with peace. We come to you now this morning, Lord, asking that you would strengthen us in the inner man by your Spirit, Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith, and we we might be filled with all the fullness of God, and we pray you would do this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Salvation by faith alone is the key Protestant doctrine. As the Protestant fathers have handed down the gospel to us, they taught us that faith is the alone instrument of justification. It is only by faith alone that we can receive justification for our sins. It is by faith alone that we are justified in God's sight, not by works that we have done, not by feelings that we experience, not by doctrines that we have memorized, but by faith alone. Faith justifies a sinner by receiving and resting on Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Now, I'm sure that this doctrine that I've just sketched very briefly is well known to you. I'm sure this is not the first time you've heard sola fide, faith alone. But, as they say, familiarity often breeds contempt. This doctrine is so well known to us, it is now over, uh, if we confine ourselves to the Western church, it was rediscovered over 500 years ago. Half a millennium ago, Luther nailed his theses to the church door. And this doctrine is so common among us, I think we're in danger of not giving it its due notice, because it is so familiar to us. You know, in my house, our floor is not perfectly level, but that floor is so familiar to us, we don't even think about it. Faith itself is often misunderstood. It's often Uh, misconstrued either as emotion or doctrine or willpower or as one of the modern errors has it today, faithfulness is often thought of as faith. Now faith produces those things. True saving faith produces emotion. It helps us to understand doctrine. It gives us the strength of heaven to do right. And it does produce faithfulness in us. But those are not faith. Faith is something different than all of those things. With the loss of faith or the loss of the understanding of faith, all manner of evil ideas have crept into our churches, into our minds, and into our hearts. Some say that faith is our emotional response to the gospel. Others say it is our obedience to the gospel. 
Still more say it is understanding the truths of the gospel. Many in our churches think faith as merely agreeing that the gospel is true. Some have gone so far as to teach that the gospel is justification by faith alone. Many take this to mean that all that's required of sinners is that you have to agree with this statement, I am justified by faith alone, and they've done everything that God requires. Yet more act as if faith were something that we can produce in our own strength. Furthermore, many think of faith as a response to God's mercy, love, and kindness. Others make excuses for not having faith by pointing out the problems they have with the Bible, the church, and Christians. In every way and in whatever angle we want to take a look at the day in which we live, our day is a day that misunderstands this key doctrine of the Scriptures. What is even worse, our day is a day in which true saving faith is not seen very often among us. It's hardly seen in our personal lives, in our church leaders, in our civil leaders. In the day of cynical burnouts, which is what this day is, it's a day of cynical burnouts, the Christian virtue of faith finds very few souls in which it can grow. Why is this? Now, we could point to all the usual suspects, public school, Christian ministers, Christian schools, Christians themselves, tyrants in government, homosexuality, transgenderism, oppression, etc., etc., etc. We could point to all of the usual suspects as to why faith is so rare. Beloved, the problem is not in the systems of the world. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. It is in our hearts and our souls where the problem lies. The reason faith finds so little soil in which to be planted and grow is because of the old, old sin of pride. Pride is the enemy of true saving faith. And for faith to flourish, pride must die. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would do such a work among us that our faith would grow in the soil of buried pride. What we're going to learn in this passage about true saving faith is that true faith makes the spiritual world real to the individual soul, enabling it to endure. I'll say this again. True saving faith makes the spiritual world real to the soul, enabling it to endure. We're going to see three things in this passage. Verse 1, faith and the soul. Verse 2, faith and heaven. Verse 3, faith and creation. Verse 1 is faith and the soul. Verse 2 is faith and heaven. Verse 3 is faith and creation. And so we begin with faith and the soul. Now it's good at this point to be reminded of what our uh, our Protestant forefathers taught us about saving faith. Westminster Confession, chapter 14, paragraph 2, says that true saving faith believes to be true whatever is revealed in the Word for the authority of God Himself speaking therein. 
true saving faith receives what is revealed in the Word and believes it to be true, not on the testimony of man, not on the testimony of emotion, not on the testimony of experience, but based on the authority of God Himself who speaks in the Scriptures. Now, in this light, hopefully we can understand that faith is a duty of the first commandment. Because saving faith looks exclusively to God and His supreme authority. Saving faith exclusively rests itself upon the authority of God the Creator. And so this is a duty of the first commandment. Westminster Larger Catechism 104 says that the duties required in the first commandment are... uh, Owning God as God indeed and our own God, and then hoping and believing Him. You see, brothers and sisters, to doubt God's Word is an indictment of God Himself. To doubt what God says in His Word is to say something about the author of that Word. True saving faith, recognizing the authority of the divine author, rests in what that author has said in his word. Now, it's important to have this in mind before we begin looking at this passage, because the author is going to now be talking about this faith, this saving faith. Verse 1, he says two things about saving faith and how they relate to the soul how they relate to your individual experience. The first thing he says is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. The word substance here in Greek, it means actual existence. It means the way something takes shape. The way that something comes into being. The way that something has a real existence. Notice what he says. Faith is the substance. Faith is that by which your soul sees the truth. Faith is the substance, and he says, of things hoped for. This word hope is a word that directs us to one thing the promises of God. The things that we hope for, or I should put it this way, the only things we ought to hope for are the things that God has promised to do. Saving faith has an eye towards God's promises. And in God's promises, it sees all of the good things that God has promised to those who trust in the Lord Jesus. And it is those things alone that I have a guarantee from heaven will be done for me. Therefore, those are the only things that faith looks to. Those are the only things that faith can bring home to your soul. Now, we need to distinguish here between true faith and wishful thinking. This often is how Christian faith is characterized, isn't it? Well, that's just wishful thinking. Marx, uh, I think it was Marx, famously said that uh, religion, faith, is the opiate of the masses. It's a psychological drug to help you cope with your sufferings. None of it is true, but if it helps you muddle along, we won't say much about it. True faith is far different from wishful thinking. True faith looks to God. Wishful thinking looks to man. True faith brings home to the soul the good things that God has promised. Wishful thinking brings home to the soul those things the soul wants. True faith is a work of the Spirit by the Word focused on Christ and His benefits. Wishful thinking is a work of the flesh 
by means of the world focused on self and its desires. Think about how advertisements work. When the car ad comes on the show, they show you the fancy automobile with the beautiful woman and the man having a great time. And then your desire for that thing gets implanted. That's wishful thinking. True faith looks to Christ and away from self. Wishful thinking looks to self and away from Christ. As I mentioned, many consider faith to be wishful thinking. They don't, they don't distinguish the two. You hear this much in our society, don't you? God has a plan. God does have a plan. And in that plan, he's promised blessing for the righteous and judgment for the wicked. You hear people say things like, it'll all work out. Or, this one very common, I feel that God is calling me to X, Y, Z. Isn't it interesting how sometimes when that is used, perhaps um, a, a woman who has um, been unfaithful in her marriage, and then lo and behold, she feels God is calling her to divorce her husband. Isn't it interesting how these things often work? Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Faith is more than wishful thinking. It is not a delusion of yourself. It is not a psychological opiate that deadens you to reality. It is, in fact, the only thing that can open you to the true reality. He mentions that faith is the substance of things hoped for. What are these things that we hope for? What are the things that God has promised to give those who love Him? We can summarize them under three heads. Justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Faith is what looks to the promises of God in Christ for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Notice, revealed in the Scriptures. What has God revealed? His own righteousness. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Brothers and sisters, God has promised to justify you if you believe in Christ. The reality of that justification is brought home to you by faith. By receiving and resting on Christ and receiving as true whatsoever God has revealed for His own authority in the Word. Your sins are not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority. He has revealed to you the way of righteousness by faith in His Son. That's not all God has promised. He's promised you justification and sanctification. Look to Hebrews chapter 10. 
Justification is being declared righteous in the eyes of the judge. Sanctification is being made progressively more and more holy. Justification delivers you from the guilt of sin. Sanctification delivers you from the power of sin. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 10. Hebrews 10, verse 10. By that will, the will of God revealed in the Scriptures, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, you are holy in Christ. Now you might say to me, Pastor, you don't know my sins. I don't need to know your sins. I don't need to know your experiences. I don't need to know what you're going through. God has said in his word, if you believe in Christ, you are holy. You are set apart. You are perfectly sanctified in Him. Faith brings this home to you. Faith is what brings this home to your souls. Not your experiences. Not your good works. Not the doctrines you've memorized. But faith receiving and resting on Christ. As if that weren't enough, God has also promised eternal life to those who believe in Him. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. This is more to the point of our author in Hebrews. Remember the context. The author of Hebrews is exhorting the people to persevere and endure through trial. And the, the, what the author is now going to speak about in chapter 11 is not justification by faith or even sanctification by faith. He's going to speak about perseverance by faith. He's speaking about the faith that justifies, but he's speaking about it also as the faith which enables you to endure. Look at Revelation 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead... And who came to life? I know your works, tribulation and poverty. The Hebrews had endured a great trial of afflictions. They had endured the plundering of their goods. But you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested You will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Notice how Christ encourages this church that has already been persecuted. They are about to be persecuted, and he says, endure because eternal life is waiting for you. It is by faith that the things we hope for are made real to our souls. It could be no other way. Because the things we hope for, we do not see them. The things we hope for are not evident to our eyes. How about righteousness? If you examine your life, if you examine your heart, you will find evidence after evidence after evidence of your unrighteousness in God's sight. It is only by faith in the promise that you can enjoy your justification. What about sanctification? If you see the temptations around you and you see the temptations of your own flesh, if you knew the power of the devil, there would be no hope in yourself except by faith in the promise that I have been set apart in Christ. What about eternal life? These Christians in Smyrna, the Christians in the letter to the Hebrews, Christians throughout history have been persecuted, beaten. Paul was left for dead. He was shipwrecked in the deep for many days. 
Many, many Christians have had to face physical death. With their eyes, all they can see is the lion, the fire, and the sword. How do they endure? By faith, bringing this crown of life to their souls. They trusted in the promise. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That's not all what our author says in Hebrews. The first thing he says in verse 1 is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, but it is also the evidence of things that are not seen. This word evidence, it's elenktho. We've seen this word in John 16. The Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Same word that's used for evidence. The word means demonstration, proof, refutation, conviction, and he says here that faith is the evidence of things not seen. These are realities we cannot perceive with our senses. Brothers and sisters, we, we can see and hear and touch, taste, and feel this whole physical creation. But there is a whole nother world, a spiritual world, that you cannot see. You cannot measure it. You cannot weigh it. You cannot taste it. You cannot smell it. You cannot hear it with these ears. There's a whole nother reality that is a part of this existence that you can only know by faith. It is the evidence of things not seen. As I mentioned, these, these things that we can't see, you cannot demonstrate the existence of angels with a Geiger counter. You cannot measure the spiritual world with calipers. That's a category mistake. Now what do many, at least previous generations, they will say, prove God's existence. And what do they mean? Give me the weight. Give me the measurement. Give me the scale. That was up to our generation. It used to be that the scientific method was the way that you proved truth. We've abandoned that today. It's not the scientific method anymore. In our day, however, the, the test has become emotional response. People's emotional responses to things are now the test of truth. There is a theory behind this. There's a philosophical framework behind this, just like there was for the scientific method. The philosophical theory behind that is called reader response. Some of you may have heard of this. Reader response is a theory that says a, a piece of literature means what it makes me feel at a very rudimentary level. That's the bargain basement version. And so reader response says that whatever the author meant to say is not the truth. What he said and what it makes me feel is the truth. You see evidences of this all around you, don't you? Microaggressions, uh, people explaining away American history because it makes them feel oppressed. This is rampant in our world. At the end, this is just another form of leaning on our own understanding. You see, the scientific method, the scientists said that, well, we understand height, weight, measurements, smells. We understand all that. So talk to us in that category. We're going to lean on our own understanding. And if you can make the gospel true for our understanding, then we will believe. Now, we have people in tune with their own emotions. And so they want us to make things true according to their emotions. That is leaning on their own understanding. The book of Numbers 15, 37 through 41, don't turn there. But in that passage, that's where Israel's commanded to make fringes on their garments, the blue tassels on their clothes. The Lord says, the purpose of this is so that you will remember my word and not follow your heart, not go a-whoring away from me, by following your own understanding. 
Faith is the demonstration of things that we cannot see. Principally, it's the great spiritual realities of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's the great spiritual realities that there is a creator and that there is a judge and that men, though they are never condemned by a human court, are accountable to God. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. When faith brings this home to the soul, it produces an effect. It produces the humbling of the self and the exaltation of God. Consider some of the testimonies of the saints. Job 42, 1-6. through 6. This is a very important one. Turn to Job 42. Job 42, verses 1-6. through 6. One of the themes of the book of Job is that Job, according to his own understanding, doesn't understand what's happening. According to his own perception, cannot figure out what is going on. And then in chapter 42, it is revealed to him. The Lord, by the way, when the Lord shows up, if you, you may know the passages, through an extended period of this uh, book, the Lord is arguing with him. The Lord is proving, demonstrating, convicting. It's an illustration of what the word in Hebrews means. Elenktho. He is proving what? Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I couldn't see before, but now I do see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. When the demonstration of the unseen realities come home to Job's heart, he abhors himself. Paul speaks in the same vein in Romans 7, verses, uh, verse 24. He goes through his experiences as a Christian. I want to do the law, but I find that I can't do the law. I delight according to the law, but in my members there's another law warring against the law of my mind. And his conclusion, O oh, wretched man that I am, not O oh, wretched law that I'm under. Peter, in Luke 5, 8, when Christ performs the great miracle of fish, Peter sees this miracle, and by faith he now understands this is the Christ, and Peter's response is, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. I cannot be in your presence, because you are the Holy One. Faith brings this home to the soul. Faith is what does this. It brings the unseen realities home to the soul. Faith is the master virtue of the Christian soul. Faith is, as it were, the, the, the grace main. You know that your house is connected to a water main. And if that water main breaks, houses, uh, uh, no water is going to the sink, no water is going to the shower, no water is going to the dishwasher. Likewise, in the life of our soul, faith is the grace main. It is the main conduit through which grace comes into our lives. If faith breaks, no more grace. Grace cannot reach you without faith. Now, it is our own doubts and questionings that come from our pride that are the great enemy of faith and the enemies of our souls. James writes in chapter 1, verse 6, 
Uh, Consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. And if any, uh, 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 if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God nothing doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed about with the wind, a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What does James mean by that word when he says no doubting? The word means no hesitation, no doubting, no questioning. What James is saying is that when we ask God, when we trust in his promises, we ought not to question those promises. It doesn't matter what is going on in our life. Now, often this is the conflict, isn't it? This is the conflict. A, a very apt illustration would be covenant children. God has made promises. I will teach your children. And you look at them and think, they're not learning the lesson. I, I don't see this working. And if those doubts and questionings and hesitations are allowed to continue, we should not expect anything from God. And so James says, ask of the Lord with no doubting. His promises are more real than your life. His promises are more real than your experiences. His promises govern the world. There is no reason to doubt those promises. Our own doubts and questionings hinder our faith. But let me tell you, beloved, There is no safer ground than God's promises. There is no safer path than the things he's told you in his word. There is no better wisdom than to fear the Lord and fear not. There is no more certain path than the one you cannot see, but which God has laid out for you in his promises. This is what Abraham did. Getting a little bit ahead of myself, later on in chapter 11, that's exactly what the author says about Abraham. By faith, he went to a place he didn't know, trusting in God's promises. Brothers and sisters, there is no safer way than to hazard everything on God's word because his word never fails. Faith brings these things home to the soul. The last thing I'll say on verse 1. Faith is strengthened by the means of grace. Faith is fed by the word and it is exercised in prayer. Think of your faith like your physical body. You need good nutrition and you need activity. The word of God is the nutrition of your faith. Prayer is the activity of your faith. Lift heavy things in prayer. But make sure you feed your faith with good food from the Word. That's how your faith will be strengthened. The author goes on now into verse 2 and speaks about faith and heaven. He says in verse 2, By it the elders obtained a good testimony. Uh, The elders, this refers to the Old Testament saints. The the following part of this chapter is going to go through that list of all these Old Testament saints. Going all the way back to Abel. One important thing that this teaches us is that from the beginning, the plan of God was to save men by faith in the promise. That has always been the plan. That has always been the way sinners are saved from Adam all the way up to you and me and however many other souls God chooses to save after we're gone. It has always been faith in the promise. He says also they obtained a good testimony This refers to God's testimony about them. The the word here does not refer to your witness in the world. He's not saying that by faith you can be a good witness of Christ in the world. He's saying that by faith, heaven looks at you and says, saved. Heaven looks at you and says, mine. Heaven looks at you and says, holy. Heaven looks at you at the end of your life and will put the crown of life on your head. A good testimony from God himself, not from man. A couple of examples. Verse 4 in this chapter, by faith, Abel offered a good, a more excellent sacrifice, listen, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying. Verse 16, same 
concept. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God. Brothers and sisters, if you believe in Christ, though your sins may be a source of shame, God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed to call you His people if you trust in His Son. Verse 39, the same theme. All these having obtained a good testimony through faith. The testimony is heaven's testimony about you and what God thinks of you. There are two aspects to this testimony. Now and then. This testimony occurs now. Look at Romans 8. Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. That's faith at work. The spirit of adoption in the heart causes it to cry out like a newborn baby, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This is the witness of heaven right now. This is all written in the present tense. And this is something God gives by faith. Pray unto God. Cry out to Him with the spirit of adoption. Not with the spirit of fear. Not thinking that I have to pray good enough or God won't hear me. But with the spirit of adoption. Abba, Father, Hear me. And you will know the testimony of heaven. You will know the witness in your soul that you belong to him. But not only does he witness now, he also witnesses then. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Verses 31 through 34. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, brothers and sisters. It is hard to describe the glory that Christ is talking about here. What He is talking about is nothing less that when the Son of Man comes with all of His angels, the invisible spiritual realities will be manifest to everyone. Christ will be exalted on the throne of His glory All the cherubim and seraphim will be surrounding him and he will sit in his glory. The king of kings and lord of lords. Look at what he says. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. Then the king will say, the Christ will say to you, come blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That is the testimony of heaven. And that awaits all those who trust in him. But not yet. It is often in this life that the things which are highly esteemed among men are abomination in the sight of God, and the things that are highly esteemed by God are abominable in the sight of men. In this life, those that believe in Christ are often not very good looking in the world. They're not very prominent. They don't have much money. They don't have much status. They don't have much influence. They may be burdened with all kinds of besetting sins. But it is by faith that they obtain the testimony of God. It is by faith that God says to those who believe, I 
am not ashamed of you. Though you may be ashamed of yourself. Though the world may be ashamed of you. Though your family may be ashamed of you. Though all the devils in hell may cast shame upon you, God himself says, I am not ashamed of you. You are mine, and I am yours. That is the good testimony. Finally, well, the last thing to say on this point, I mentioned at the beginning, pride is the enemy of faith. Listen to what the Lord says in Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. Meaning, doesn't matter how good you are, doesn't matter how smart you are, doesn't matter how wealthy you are, I'm unimpressed. That, that does not impress me. But to this one I will look. To this one I will be impressed with. This one I will pay attention to. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what's impressive to God. That's what he desires. And that's the one that will receive the testimony. Well, the last thing he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, we'll be briefer on this point. Hebrews 11, verse 3. He speaks of faith and the creation in verse 3. He says, by faith we understand. This word means to reason in the mind, to think through a problem. As you're doing your calculus or your accounting or your algebra, you are doing the word that's used here. You're you're understanding with the mind. By faith we, we understand... He says that the worlds were framed by God. This is a a common term that refers to the entire created order. The world of plants and the world of animals. The world of men and the world of angels. The visible and the invisible world. All the worlds, the entire cosmos, was framed by the word of God. The word framed means to bring it to completion, to order and to govern. This, what, what the author is saying here, let me just be very succinct. The author is not speaking about Genesis 1-1 only. He's speaking about the entire work of creation and God's providential governing of that creation. He's speaking about the totality of God's work in all of reality. It is framed by the word of God. Then he draws the conclusion here. He says, uh, such that the things which are seen, what we can see and perceive with our senses, do not come from things which are visible. Here's the punchline. The ultimate reality of existence is God's word. The ultimate reality of existence is the word of the living God. John 1, 1 through 4, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were created with him. Without him, nothing was created that was created. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, He is the image of the invisible God, for by him and through him all things were created, and in him All things consist. Hebrews 1.3, he says that this exalted Christ holds all things together by the word of his power. Psalm 104, I commend it for your meditation. Psalm 104 is an extended psalm on this very theme. At one point in Psalm 104, he says, The flowers bloom in the spring because the Holy Spirit moves on them. He uses photosynthesis. He uses the longer daylight hours. He uses the higher temperatures. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who does this. All of created order is governed by God's word. 
And it is by faith that we understand this. Because his word testifies to this. Now, let's land this. You may be asking, well, what's what's the point of this creational comment here in this section? This is extremely apt for the author's purpose. Remember that he's encouraging them to endure trial, suffering. Some of them may die for the sake of the faith. When we suffer, it can appear to our eyes that somebody else is in control. When pain takes over our experience, it can seem as though the cause of our pain is ruling things. Because that's what I'm experiencing. But by faith, we understand that it is the Lord who governs all things. It is the Lord who governs all of the created order. And in the end... It is my heavenly Father who rules in the world of men. It is my great God and Savior. It is the one who gave me the Lord Jesus Christ, and how shall he not with him freely also give me all things? That's the one who's in charge. The one who loves you and says, I'm not ashamed of you, is governing all these things. As the old hymn goes, I do not know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I do not borrow from its sunshine, from its sky, for its skies may turn gray. I do not worry over the future, for I know what Jesus said. Today he'll walk beside me, for he knows what is ahead. Many things about tomorrow I do not seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Every step is getting brighter as the golden stairs I climb. Every burden's getting lighter. Every cloud is silver lined. There the sun is always shining. There no tear will dim the eye at the ending of the rainbow where the mountains touch the sky. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow. And I know who holds my hand. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that be my portion may be through flame or flood. But his presence goes before me, and I'm covered in his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But by faith, I know who holds tomorrow. And by faith, I know who holds my hand. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray as Jarius prayed. We believe, O Lord, help our unbelief. For it is only by faith that we stand. Please bless us for Jesus' sake in this way. Amen.